few years ago, not sure how many, there was someone who appeared on CNN and after their segment was over, they went to the bathroom and forgot to turn the mic off. And so when the program actually returned from commercial break, as the anchor was talking, you heard somebody pee. Now, it was straight out of a scene from Naked Gun, the one where Frank Drebin goes to the bathroom after speaking at a press conference. Mike is still hot. So you heard him taking what felt like a 30-minute piss. It was a very funny moment. As a broadcaster, that was one of my biggest fears. But I was pretty good at either removing my microphone pack altogether if I had to go to the bathroom during a show or just cutting it off when I had to go. In television broadcasting, the old adage is that the mic is always hot. Even if they tell you your mic isn't on, it's wise to act like everyone can hear you. That is straight from the book of Common Sense, Act 1, Verse 3. Now, the subject of this week's word of the week wasn't familiar with that proverb, obviously. And for reasons that will make sense in just a moment, the word of the week is diabetes. Trust me, just wait for it. A couple of weeks ago, the Norman High School girls basketball team played against the Midwest City team in the Oklahoma State Tournament. Now, during the national anthem, the Norman High girls took a knee to bring awareness toward social injustice, which is something they have been doing all season. The game was being broadcast live on a live streaming platform, and the announcer, Matt Rowan, told listeners that they were taking a break and the broadcast would resume right after the national anthem. Rowan was clearly under the assumption that he was no longer live on air. So not realizing his mic was still hot, he let loose a hot take about how he really felt about Norman's protest. Take a listen. Here's what they think about you. A grown man calling high school girls such a vicious racial slur is obviously disgusting and wrong. But if you listen further, you will notice that his buddy in the broadcast booth doesn't have any reaction when my man just casually drops the N-word like it was part of his breakfast order. He seemed to be in agreement with him, although he didn't use a racial slur. Best way to put it is his attitude was like, well, yeah, look at these N-words, but what you gonna do? And that right there is a significant part of the problem. Since this has been exposed, Matt Rowan has lost his job, as he should have. But what about his broadcasting partner, the other guy who was in the booth with him? I haven't seen his name mentioned anywhere. For some people, that doesn't matter. But to me, it does. Just because his broadcasting partner didn't say the N-word, that doesn't let him off the hook. He was fully complicit. And as a black woman, and I would say this about a lot of black people or speak to what we have probably all experienced in some form. But many of us wonder about those conversations that white people have about us when we're not in the room. I don't know about you, but I've often heard white people say, including friends of mine, that they have racist relatives or racist friends or co-workers. And I often wonder when those racist people say racist things, what's their response? We spent the better part of 2020 talking about allyship. White folks consistently ask how they can be better allies. And to me, the only way you can be a good ally is if you're willing to risk something. It's not just about support. It's about risk too. Are you willing to cut off a friendship, stop speaking to a relative or have an awkward conversation with somebody about their racism? And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't. Now, this guy in the broadcast booth, I'm not saying he's an ally. Given the level of comfort he had when old boy said what he said, it's not unreasonable to assume 
that he drops slurs too. But he should be facing just as much scorn and derision as the guy who actually said the racial slur. He wasn't just complicit. He was a co-conspirator. Now, if you're wondering when I'm going to make the connection to the word of the week, well, here it is. Matt Rowan has apologized. And for this to have the full effect, let me read a bit of his apology, which he released to an Oklahoma newspaper called The Frontier. Rowan said, and remember, this is verbatim. I will state that I suffer type 1 diabetes, and during the game, my sugar was spiking. While not excusing my remarks, it is not unusual when my sugar spikes that I become disoriented and often say things that are not appropriate as well as hurtful. You are not hearing that wrong. There is not a bad connection between us. This fool really blamed his diabetes for making him call some high school girls a racial slur. I mean, who knew that after dealing with hundreds of years of racism, the cure all along was some damn insulin. Now, I have known many a diabetic. And from what I know of the disease, none of the side effects include the propensity to uncontrollably use racial slurs. Somewhere, Wilford Brimley is rolling in his grave. And that's our word of the week. Diabetes. Oh, and by the way, forgot to mention this. The Norman High girls basketball team, they won the state title. Congratulations, ladies. Also, while I'm on the subject of addressing racist assholes, there's another one that I'll be discussing later in the show for Fuck It, I'm Bothered. Now on to today's show. My guest today is one of the most consistent, gifted, money-making movie makers in Hollywood, although he does reside in Atlanta. These days, it's hard to find a movie or television project that doesn't have his name on it. He currently has a series on BT called Bigger and three movies that are in production, but he has spearheaded several blockbuster franchise productions. Think like a man, right along. In 2017, he brought audiences Girls Trip, which had a budget of just 20 million, but brought in nearly 200 million worldwide and was the first film by an African-American female screenwriter to gross over 100 million. It was the highest grossing comedy of 2017. Now, because I'm in a rush to get to him, I'm not going to go over his entire resume. Otherwise, I'd be talking for another 20 minutes. But let's just say homie makes a lot of hit movies. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Will Packer. So, Will, we have something in common other than being big sports fans. You used to deliver newspapers, right? Don't tell me you deliver newspapers. No, but I did deliver phone books. So, oh, God. <laughs> so, oh, that's worse. Yeah, that's how. Listen, the newspapers, <laughs> you get in there, roll them up. That was my, like, after I left college, I left FAMU way before I had any of these movie posters, right? I'm just trying to make it happen. I'm in Atlanta. I'm Atlanta. I'm delivering the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I would get up every morning. You get up about 2 a.m. so you can be to work at 3 a.m. Roll all those newspapers because you got to have them delivered by 6 a.m. That was a cutoff time back when people got newspapers delivered. And I liked it because I could, you know, play movie aspiring movie producer during the day. So I could go and I could be on phone calls and do all that. And then I could work in the middle of the night. Now, it was awful for my social life. Right. Everybody else going to the club turned up, man, I got to go to work at 2 a.m. So if the party wasn't cracking by 11, I was out because I had to get some rest. 
Phone books, dude. How does that like those are heavy? What are you? You got to get out of your car. Like I was throwing them from my the back of behind the Civic. You got to get out and walk up to people's doors or what? Yeah. And as you know, um, as somebody, these kids don't know nothing about that phone book, right? Because they didn't have Google and all the Internet, right? They they don't know about this phone book. And those no idea. Those things were heavy. And I was driving a four probe at that time. I got um, 70 cent a book. <laughs> OK, do you remember how much you got paid for delivering newspapers? Like 35 cents a paper. 35 cents a paper. <laughs> yeah. But 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 now I was delivering between. 200 and 300 papers a day so you know it's a hustle it was a hustle that worked with my like aspiring to be something bigger lifestyle you know what i mean i always say if you're willing to do something if you're willing to put the work in right you're willing to do what somebody else isn't to attain a particular goal you're halfway there it's the will to get up you know early in the morning, people just went down to do that. You know what I mean? With my first movie, I drove a Ford excursion from every city that my little movie was playing. Everybody, every theater I had talked somebody into playing my movie. It was, it was called Twa. You wouldn't know nothing about that. Jamel, oh, I know about Twa. I don't know, know about Twa. I, I saw, I you saw Twa and I saw you? part two. I didn't, I think you did three of them, right? Oh, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah, see, listen, come on now. Don't insult me, Will. <laughs> Listen, I just I just assumed that would not be in your uh, cinema palette, uh, Sister J. But it's good to know. Yeah. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Something else we got in common. There you go. <laughs> you would be surprised. So you go from delivering newspapers to being this big mega producer that you are right now. Um, tell me the first time you felt like you were famous. I'll tell you. You know what it was? So before... So I made this movie called Twa, and anywhere I would go, I would, and I was trying to like either make myself relevant in a conversation or get into a particular place. I would say, hey, you ever see that movie Twa? And they'd be like, yeah, I saw that because it was a small cult classic back then. So in certain rooms, I could drop Twa and people would be like, oh, yeah, right? Then I hated being the Twa guy because I was just the Twa guy for like, Five years, because that was the biggest thing I had done, right? I did other stuff. I did a movie called The Gospel, which happened to be Idris Elba's first movie after The Wire. and But it didn't hit the same way Twa did, because Gospel was about church-going, morally right Christian values. So and you now know, I feel bad that I've never seen Gospel, but I've seen two Twas. <laughs> neither did a lot of people. You are like everybody else. Twa, everybody saw. Gospel did all right, but it wasn't. It didn't hit like Twa hit, especially on like the bootleg circuit. Everybody had Twa. So then I was just the Twa guy. I was like, I at first I wanted to be the Twa guy. Then I was like, I don't want to be the Twa guy. Then I made Stomp the Yard. That was my next big movie, right? And Stomp the Yard came out and definitely got a lot of attention, especially in Hollywood in certain circles. And then I was clearly the Stomp the Yard guy. Like, that's what I was. I wrote that. When I knew I had, like, made it and I was, like, I was lightweight famous was when I was no longer identified by one particular movie. And I was Will Packer, who makes the movies, the movie producer, right? I could just say Will Packer. And I had a few movies to claim, you know, before that, I was either just, oh, the guy that made this one thing or this one thing. That's when I knew I was a somebody when I could not be associated with just one movie and still be relevant in some conversation. 
And now you getting all the checks. I'm like, Will, save a check for somebody else. <laughs> right? We all over the place now. Yeah, we do we do it all now. Yeah. Um your your movies total, I think, have grossed a uh, billion dollars. And so um that's an amazing accomplishment. Oh, it's a blessing. It's still crazy when I think about it and say it and you know, I, I, I have to have to remind family members that don't mean I got the billion, just to be clear. But my projects have grossed that. But still, that's crazy. And, and um, you know, especially now with the environment being so different, like having a number one movie at the box office, that will mean something very different. You know, I got 10 number one movies, right? Going forward, a number one movie at the box office, once the theaters do open back up, which I think they will, I think it's only going to be like the biggest tentpole movies like only the marvel movies the fast and furious and jurassic parks and so the movies that i make which a lot of people watch a lot of people enjoy you know we'll see i think i'll still have a spot in the theatrical environment but i just think it's going to look different it's going to skew towards just the mega mega huge blockbuster four quadrant movies nothing wrong with that i may make one of those too but you know anyway yeah i look back at the time when I was making movies and the success I had. And I don't know it will be that it will be quantified like that going forward. How much does that worry you? As a producer? Because I think about it as a producer and as a consumer. So as a consumer, I like the fact that I can watch what I want to watch when I can watch it. I don't mind as a consumer, I can come into my screening room and watch, you know, uh, Wonder Woman or watch, you know, whatever the new HBO Max offering is that's available at home now, like I don't mind that as a consumer, right? As a producer, it means that I got to be malleable. It means I got to be quick and I got to be able to adjust my game. I can't just be the guy that's making content for one format. You know what I'm saying? I can't be making content for one, you know, medium. I can't. I got to make it where my consumers are. I got to be able to adjust. I tell my team that all the time. We got to be fast and nimble. We got to be able to adjust. So it may mean I got to make streaming movies. It may mean I got to make movies that are, you know, theatrical. I may have to make a hybrid of both. You know what I mean? So I got to be able as a content producer to create the content where the people are. I can't just sit back and say the people going to come to me. I got to come to the people. Uh, as we're taping this podcast, uh, Denzel's movie, The Little Things, just came out. And I watched it the other night. And it blew my mind because I saw a headline that said, normally, this would be a good thing. You know, The Little Things, number one in the box office, right? The number, it was $4.8 million. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's where things are right now. That's where things are. You wouldn't even see the $4.8 million grocer on the charts, you know, pre-COVID. You wouldn't even know what that movie was. And it better not have Denzel in it, damn it. Like that would have been somebody's getting fired. Everybody's getting fired. But the theaters aren't open and people aren't going out. But here's what I will say. I do think that once it's socially and medically acceptable for us to like, you know, go back outside, um, I think that theaters will be back and be robust. I just don't know that it would be the same wide breadth of movies that it used to be, which is unfortunate. You know what I mean? Um, Because I like to see smaller movies or movies that are made in a particular genre get that big screen treatment. I think some will, but not as many. That's, that's my thought. 
Now, granted, you are uh, based in Atlanta and there, uh, having gone to Atlanta last summer, I had to do some stuff with TNT. Um, it's like the pandemic didn't happen in Atlanta. Am I missing something in Georgia? Like it skipped y'all. <laughs> Atlanta is turning up like it's 2019 and they have been doing that since 2019. You know, listen, here's the thing. I'd I, I be, I be real with you. I'm not going to get political, but there are certain elements about living in a red state. It just is what it is. Georgia, Florida, Texas, uh, they wild. I'm just going to tell you. And by they, I guess I have to say me because I live in Atlanta, but I'm not going out there with these people because I, I, my mom lives in Florida. I've had to go check on her. Everybody in Florida wears the mask below the nose. Everybody. I'm just going to tell you. That's just, that's just how they rock it. I was, I was in a subway and the people making the sandwich had the mask. And I was like, how do I like, you know, respectfully Asked this sister to maybe pull it up a little bit. And she looked like she didn't really want my opinion on her mask etiquette. So I just I just got my sandwich and didn't eat it. That's what I did. I just I didn't want no problems. Florida people, Georgia people wide open. I don't know what Atlanta's doing. The clubs, you can't even get in a club in Atlanta. It's popping. I'm like, what? Like, even if you're not worried about you, what about grandma? You know what I'm saying? Like you going home to to my dear, like what what we thinking? So ATL is special. Yeah. When when I saw the pool parties, the indoor pool party, I was like, wait a minute. I wasn't ready. <laughs> like, make you check the date. Like, you're like, is this a throwback post? Like, I see stuff online. Like, oh, that can't be. Oh, that was in last year. No, this was Thursday. This was this, this is what's happening now. I'm going, okay, I'm going to let y'all have it. I just think everybody got to make their personal choice about their health. Unfortunately, it's affected everybody else's health. You know what I mean? It's like peeing at the shallow end of the pool. I'm getting it to like, come on, man. So I have no defense for that. None. Well, I haven't talked to um, more actors during this time, and they talk about how the pandemic has completely changed how they shoot. Whereas before you could rehearse with people, but now that's not taking place as much that the only time they're really without their mask or really having contact sometimes with multiple people is when you do actually do the scene. So from a producer standpoint, how has this pandemic impacted how you work? Oh, every way, every way. And it's, it's, it's interesting, Jamel, because at the beginning of the pandemic, like all I heard from people within the film community was especially like what we call below the line personnel, the people that actually the grips and electrics and PAs and not the actors, not the directors, right? Like the people that are actually out there making the movie happen or the TV show. All I heard was we are dying. Like we got to get back to work. It wasn't like anybody planned for this, of course. Right. So, you know, a, a grip working in Atlanta had his next three shows lined up. He didn't have like some nest egg because the industry was going to shut down. So our industry shut down like every other industry. And all I heard was we got to get back to work. And so then it was like, well, how? So I had a very personal drive to figure out how to put my people back to work, like people that have been working with me on crews and and people that, you know, I had several shows that were supposed to happen that got pushed back. I was like, I got to get people back going. Then it was a question about how, because it doesn't matter if they're working, if they're not safe. Like that's, that's just, that's the priority. That's paramount. Like it's not about just getting them to work. They got to get back to work and they got to get back to work safe because if they're not going home to their families because they get sick, then what are we doing? So 
from my standpoint, it's very different. I have been back up and shooting. We actually have shot multiple projects during the pandemic, but we are very careful. I, number one, I have to expend a lot more resources, right? So that's money. It's, it's expensive to shoot during the pandemic because you have to have all the safety protocols in place. You have to have extra equipment and extra uh, resources going towards the safety of your crew and of your actors and everybody around them. I've done some shoots that were in a, a bubble, right? Like a complete bubble. Nobody leaves. Everybody in there quarantined and stays until the shoot is finished. And then I've done others where, you know, it's a, a, a de facto bubble where everybody is staying at the same place, but not, but they can go and go back to the place they're staying. Other people, like we didn't require the people working at the hotel to necessarily quarantine. And we ask everybody to be very, very careful but we're not keeping them confined. And then I've had some other shoots where it is, we're doing everything that we can on the set and then allowing people to take personal responsibility when they leave the set. And then we're just doing very frequent testing. That is really the key. Like, you know, I've got projects that test, you know, I'm, I'm shooting something right now in Houston and every other day, we test everybody every other day. Um, and we try to, you know, do the best that we can. And so far, thank God, I haven't had, you know, any major incidences. We had some scares. We've had some had to make some adjustments, but we've been able to shoot. And that's that's huge for us. Mm. Or how much do you, are you concerned that it impacts the quality of the product that people are getting? Because, as you said, with, you know, a lot of things going to streaming uh, with theaters being a little bit out of play. Does it put more pressure on you to rush something out because of the time that we're in? Not on me, not on me. I don't know if other people are feeling that, but no, I'm, I'm, um, there was the, every, there was a total stoppage. And so a lot of stuff was backed up. So I'm getting caught up on my development slate and on the projects that I had to, to shoot. But no, it, it, I haven't had to rush anything. To be honest with you, Jamel, what happens is that in the past, I would go and do a movie and I would have a very specific release date in theaters that I had to hit. And so that meant that I did have a very strict schedule because I had to make sure that pre-production, production, post-production, post marketing and distribution, everything happened within a particular window so I could make my date. And I used to be very date driven. Now, the content that I'm making, especially on the feature side, the movies, is not date driven. It is, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I have several projects that are undetermined in terms of when they're going to release and how they're going to release. But I have them ready because, you know, the distributors, the platform, the studios, they need new content. So I, it has, I haven't felt a rush, honestly, to get stuff done. Um, I've just felt an obligation to put people back to work safely, to be honest with you. In my position, that's, I own that responsibility. I really do. Um, before we get into your path, because um, I can't wait to talk about it, because you did what I actually discourage a lot of journalism students or a lot of college students, period. I discouraged them from doing and you actually did it. You corrected, but you actually did it. We'll get to that in a second. But first, we're taping this. It's a few days away from the Super Bowl. So I think this is going to air after the Super Bowl. So I got to get you on record. OK, your team. That we won. Yes, I told y'all. Look at that defense. Look at Brady. What did I say? Play this back. You are yeah. a Bucs fan. Cut that part out if we lose. If Mahomes okay, no. does Mahomes things, can we edit that out? How does that work? 
No, I'm not cutting it out. So that's why I want to make sure that I get you on the record because I, I'm going to reserve the right to clown you if this turns out in another direction. Who you got? Who you got? Who you no, think? To be honest, I, I actually think Brady's going to do it. Like, I, I know what he's up against and the Chiefs and that explosive offense and Cheetah and Patrick Mahomes. But I, I think I think the old dog got one more trick left in him. <laughs> Listen, he's going to say not so fast, youngster. You know what I mean? There will become a time when the student is the master. I don't know that that's it. Now, here's what I will say. It is set up to be a very Brady-like game, right? It's not that Brady comes out on these biggest stages and throws for 500 yards and, you know, seven touchdowns. He is a very smart game manager. And if you look at it, right, this Tampa Bay defense, and I know we'll be watching this afterwards and y'all will be, you know, saying, boy, was Will right. The Tampa defense is underrated and has been carrying this team with Tom's leadership. But it's that defense. And our toughest matchup, honestly, was the New Orleans Saints. We do not match up well with the Saints. They had beat us five times in a row. Everybody talked about the two times this season. Nah, I watched all the Buck snaps. They had been whooping our asses, okay? We don't match up well with them. And that defense showed up. Now, after the fact, everybody said, oh, Breeze and his arm. And uh, I get that. But his arm was enough for them to win as many games they won during the season. Then we go to Lambeau and everybody goes, okay, you beat Breeze, but Aaron Rodgers is another thing. And it and that defense, Tom threw three picks. He still played a hell of a game, but that defense shut him down. After the fact, you know, well, they didn't go for the forward on fourth down. You know, Devontae Adams, the defense let Scotty Miller score. There was a lot of narratives, right? I think that, in this Super Bowl, you're going to see, play this back, Jay, you're going to see Patrick Mahomes has two offensive linemen out. He's going to have a tough time dealing with that Tampa Bay defense, which Todd Bowles, with two weeks to scheme, I think is going to put in position to give Mahomes problems. He's going to still ball, right? But I think Tom can manage this game and win this in a Tom Brady Super Bowl way, not 52 to 45, I'm telling you like 30 to 24, you know what I mean? 27 to 21, like he can manage it. He can do enough. And I think that defense will be the difference. That's what I'm saying. We'll see. Okay. Well, just to make you, you set you up to look like a genius, we're going to clip this part and put it out on Super Bowl Sunday so that Will Packer, we got his, he got his Bucks mug. I got to own it. He got the flag. I got to own it. It's been, it's been two decades, Jay. It's been, it's been damn near 20 years. I got to own it. Let me tell you, quick story. Listen, I'm such a fan. The first Super Bowl, Bucks been in two Super Bowls, okay? The first one was in San Diego against the Oakland Raiders, all right? I was broke, Will Packer. I was very shortly off of delivering newspapers, Will Packer. I couldn't get in the Super Bowl. I didn't know anybody. I couldn't do that, right? It was in San Diego. I couldn't even afford to fly directly to San Diego because the flights were so high. I flew from Atlanta to Long Beach, right? Middle seat on a JetBlue flight, rented a car in Long Beach, drove down to San Diego, check this out, to watch the Super Bowl at a Motel 6 on the outskirts of San Diego, just so I could be close. Just, that's, I'm that kind of fan. And then afterwards, when we won, I partied in that gas lamp district like I had won. You know what I'm saying? Like I had played in the game. I partied my ass off. 
because all the Raiders fans, because it was close to Oakland relative to Tampa. So Oakland was deep, right? So before the game, they were, we were here. I thought I was going to die because these Raider people are crazy. And I was out there with my little buck stuff on by myself. I thought it was going to go bad. After the game, you couldn't find none of those Raiders people. I think that's what's going to happen here. We're going to bring this thing home. Well, I, so I know a part of you, I mean, you got to be, a little bit of you has got to be dying aside because not only are the Bucks in the Super Bowl, it's in Tampa. In and Tampa. like, and you rich Will Packer, you could have had a sweet dog. <laughs> you know well, what I'm saying? Well, listen, full, full disclosure. Okay? You going to the game, mate. You- <laughs> full disclosure. All right. After I had talked to all this trash about people that go outside during COVID. Full disclosure. Will about to risk it all. <laughs> listen, listen. I hope this ain't an in memorial uh, episode after the game. <laughs> they be like, we wonder where Will got it. No, okay. Once we got Tom, okay, we didn't know what was happening. This was the very beginning of COVID, right? Free agency. So myself and Gary Sheffield, MLB great. He is also from St. Pete Tampa. That's my Mm -hmm. homeboy. Gary and I went in on a suite at Raymond James Stadium. So I actually have been sneaking down to Tampa on Sunday home games for the Bucks. I never take the mask off. I got my mask, but I have been watching this season. The great season it has been. I have been able to see it since they started letting a few fans in from the suite. Here's the kicker. Those suites for the Super Bowl, what happens is that the NFL takes them over. So my suite is going for like $500,000. I'm like, oh, I'll be watching like this. I'm not going (laughs) like that. So I'm waiting. As of this taping, I'm waiting for a couple of my media buddies to come through with some ticks. See if they can look out. (laughs) Even Rich Will Packer ain't paying the prices they want me to pay. But I think I'm going to be okay. I I, I think I'm going to be in the stadium. Okay, well, that's good. Listen, um, you at least are going, you know, based off taking the precautions based off this is your your childhood team. This is you've been rolling with them and Tampa Bay has been horrid through most of their history. Right. I mean, that's a, to me, it's a big difference between risking it all to see your your childhood team play in the Super Bowl versus, say, a little Bow Wow concert. Those are two different things to me. That's a different thing, right? Bow Wow, my God, <laughs> nobody should be doing that. Um, I'm like, I know, I know what I don't want on my tombstone is got it at a little Bow Wow concert. That's just me. Listen, <laughs> I always say that, like. I always say I don't want to die doing nothing stupid where people have to explain at the funeral. Like I never, that's why I'm not, it's too late for me to jump out of planes. It's too late for me to try to do like snowboarding tricks, adventure skiing. Like I can't do nothing where at the memorial people are like, wait, what happened? He did what? And it's just kind of like, nobody wants to talk about, I can't die doing nothing crazy. I need it to be regular. So no, you're right. It's, if it if I if I have to go out, it will be with the childhood team that I've loved forever. But I don't plan on going out, people. You're not going out, Will. <laughs> and most importantly, you may see one of the better upsets in NFL history. I think it's gonna be an amazing game, Jay. For real, like I like no. I do all, too. Like all bias aside, I mean, when's the last time you had a game where like you weren't like. Patrick Mahomes, Garoppolo, I don't think you were, like, excited Not the like same that. star factor. And I'm a 49ers fan. You see that helmet right there, right? So, I see you. I see you. <laughs> yeah. What y'all going to do with the quarterback? Let me put you on the spot. What's happening? Oh, me? 
I think we need to risk it all, put all chips to the center of the table for Deshaun Watson. And, get Deshaun. and I, I've heard there's some rumblings right now that Kirk Cousins is somebody we're targeting. Who would be an upgrade? I mean, I think Jimmy Garoppolo will be a good quarterback, but he just can't stay on the field right now. So but, that's, but you can't, that's a problem. You can't, I, but Kirk, though, I, you know, listen, I, I'm sure he's a nice brother and all that, but come on. Like, if you're going – what is that doing? Like you swap out Jimmy G for Kirk? Like Kirk is that's a that's an upgrade. I just I don't want to go all in to get a Kirk Cousins, particularly with his contract. You just don't believe in Jimmy G. Say that. Say that you don't like Jimmy. No, I just think that with the team that we have around him, we need somebody that will be able to take us to the next level right now. Kirk Cousins can take you to the next level right now. I think Kirk. I think we could get to a Super Bowl with Kirk Cousins, a hundred percent. In today's in today's like. So NFC, you're NFC, right? Kyler's coming up. I'm not saying he's got it all figured out, right? Yeah, but the, but the division itself, you got Stafford going to the Rams. I understand, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm breaking down your division. You got Stafford now, so that's definitely an upgrade, right? I believe in Stafford. Yeah, I think that's an upgrade for them too, right? So you got a problem there with that and that defense. Russ going to cook. He going to cook. You know what I'm saying? Kyler is coming up. So now you showing up to the party with all the ballers and you got Kirk and you feel good. You feel good walking into that alley with Kirk. I feel good about it because look, Jimmy Garoppolo was not nearly as advanced as Kirk Cousins. And we got to the Super Bowl with him. Like we can't do that with Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is a better passer than Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah, yes, but Jimmy got you there. Not he wasn't. He wasn't like Trent Dilfer. Like, no, he wasn't that. I mean, Jimmy but, got skills. And then he was hurt this year. Exactly. What I'm saying is that if you get a chance to upgrade at that position, given the rest of the team, the fact that we have a young, fast offense, you know, our running game, um, tight end. I mean, like we like, like we have a lot of great pieces. My man Debo sent me. We got a lot of good pieces. Like the time to win is now. Again, as I told you, my first choice, go all in for Deshaun Watson. That would be my first choice. No argument. No argument. Like he's 25 years old. Of course, that's what you do. That should be absolutely, you know, option one. But I do understand not wanting to be in the position the Rams will be where they ain't going to see another first-round pick to, like, next decade. So it's like, I get it. I get it. All I'll say is if you end up with Kirk, I hope you don't overpay for Kirk. That's all I would say. If you end up Well, there, he's owed a lot of money, and it's all fully guaranteed. And that is a concern. But, I mean, I have to be honest. It's like right now in this moment, he is an upgrade from Jimmy Garoppolo. So, you know. <laughs> ish. I'll give it to you, but ish. He's an upgrade-ish. Upgrade-ish, okay. Yeah. But right. Deshaun, you know, listen, if the Texans can just get one thing right, they need to not let that brother get out, just period. I, You know, the Texans have got so many things wrong, but now, look, if I'm Deshaun, I'm out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, you couldn't keep me there. <laughs> Absolutely. When Andre Johnson <laughs> comes out and says, hey, brother, you need to, Andre don't say nothing. Literally. That's right. He is in the corner of the Twitter room. And his first message is, get your freedom. <laughs> What? You better listen to Andre. Listen I'm to telling me. you. Oh, well, as as those listening can hear, Will Packer clearly had another career uh, as a sports commentator that he never pursued, that he probably should have given his level of sports. Um, as I told you a few moments ago, you did something that I advise college students not to do. Uh, we're going to take a quick break um, and come back with more from Will Packer, and I'll get to exactly what that is in just a moment.
So, Will, I thought it was really interesting the fact that you came to FAMU as a electrical engineering major, correct? That is true. Electrical engineering. So I'm wondering if you did this because I see a lot of college students that do this. Um, they they pick a uh, they pick a profession or pick a major based off how much money they make. Right. And so one of the things that's always true is the engineering jobs are always at the top of the list for making the most money. And I think about when I was in college, I knew a ton of engineering majors. Fast forward two years later, none of them jokers were still in engineering because once they only picked it because it made a lot of money. Hence why I always tell college students, don't pick something just because you can make money. If you love it and are passionate, you will be good at it and you will make money. So I'm wondering, especially considering what you're in now and and how good and great you are at this. Did you do the same thing? Did you pick engineering just because of the money? Your advice is right. Your advice is spot on. A hundred percent. Pick something that you're passionate about and you can do well, the money will come. Don't worry about the money. And even if the money doesn't come, you will live a happy life in theory if you're doing something you're passionate about, right? Never do it for the money because that's the fastest way to be unhappy, frankly. So for me, what happened was I never wanted to be an engineer. I was good in math and science. I was that kid. I I always had like an analytical mind. Um, I had the test scores and the grades and I got a big scholarship to major in engineering. There was a push, especially at HBCUs, to get more black students into the STEM programs, right? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And I got one of those big scholarships. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to actually I knew I wanted to be in business for myself. I didn't know film was going to be the business. But I knew I wanted to be in business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And my parents said, listen. You got the scholarship A, B, once you have an engineering degree, you can do anything you want. And you got the scholarship C, you're going to take the scholarship and then figure it out. So I went in, I did it. It was never my passion. I didn't do it because of the, the check. I did it because I had an opportunity because I got a scholarship. My parents pushed me there. I'm glad that they did. And the reality is that I still use that skill set in of, of, of honing my analytical skills, even in a very creative industry like film. All I'm doing is as a producer is managing a project, problem solving, whether it's the budget, whether it's actors, personalities, whatever. Of course, a very strong com- uh, creative component, but I'm still using that analytical skill set. And the other thing that I'll say that I, I say to you know kids, young people coming up, whatever you are in, go hard. Give it 100 percent. Right. Because engineering wasn't my passion, but like I did what I had to do. I graduated magna cum laude. That's important. Like, don't think you can just, you know, dial it in and be lazy and not do your work in whatever job you're a you're a PA, an intern, you know, um, you're answering the phones, grabbing coffee, like be the best phone answerer, coffee intern. You never know who's watching you. and, And by the way. You need to make sure that you've got that work ethic in place. You can't just turn it on when you've got a big opportunity. Like I worked very hard during my college career, and I'm so glad I did because then I entered into a very arduous field, right? A labor intensive field. So I just always say that wherever you are, even if it's not ultimately where you want to be or where you're sure you're going to be, your name is on it. People are looking at you. Give 110 percent, damn it, no matter what it is. 
Um, great advice for for people who want to uh, aspire to do either what you do or whatever that they want to do. You, you talked about Stop the Yard earlier in this podcast. How much do you think you having that historically black college experience shaped you as a filmmaker? Oh, everything. Honestly, like it adjusted my perspective. I didn't grow up. I grew up in St. Pete, Florida. Um, and so it was not like a majority black environment by far. In fact, it was, you know, maybe like 10 percent. African-American was the demographics in that city. Was there anybody in the city under 70? <laughs> a lot of old people in St. Pete. What you're not going to do is clown my little St. Pete city, especially <laughs> as we are here, uh, Super Bowl winners. Yeah, I'm going to mess <laughs> I'm, I'm, up. You had to edit all this out because I'm going to just claim victory throughout. You claim a victory. I, it's okay. I'm gonna it, look, it'll work. I, might, I hope I don't look wrong when this airs, but... Oh, no, you hope you don't look too wrong. Like, if it's a blowout, I'm going to be like, Will, that was a bad call, man. <laughs> you ain't going to blow my dogs out at home, not in my house. <laughs> no, it was... It was um, Going to FAMU actually was a culture shock because I had not been in an environment like that, right? And it wasn't my first choice of where to go. I, I, I had the grades. I had the test scores. I was headed to an Ivy, but I got this big scholarship. My parents said, guess where you going? And I went there and it opened my eyes because HBCU environments are so very competitive. And it literally is the best and the brightest Black minds. And I had the ability early on before I got to college to take advantage of people underestimating me. So when I walked in a room and I was the only black kid in the honors class, the only black kid in the AP program, they were like, OK, we we know he's he's not going to do that well. Right. And I would take advantage of that. And then I would exceed their expectations. Well, I got to fam you. Right. Like every HBCU. And there were a lot of Will Packers. Right. There were other people that could have gone to an Ivy or could have gone elsewhere and ended up here. And they were just as astute and articulate and on their game as I was. So now I got to figure out something else to stand out. And even now, when I go and I pitch my projects, right, I got to go to Universal Studios. I got an idea for a movie. I'm asking them for you know millions of dollars. I got to go and gird myself and feel confident. It is nothing like going and standing in front of the FAMU SGA, right? When the senators don't want to give me money, the deltas are hating, the Qs are hating on me. I'm an alpha, by the way. So I got hate from all the various corners and they looking at me like, why should we give you this? And they coming at me hard and I got to defend myself and pitch myself. And really that is where I honed a lot of the confidence at that HBCU, very competitive environment. People don't understand how competitive an environment where you do have everybody within a similar culture can actually be. And also from a storytelling standpoint, there are stories. If I wonder if you if you don't go to an HBCU to stomp the yard, get done. And get made. You know what I'm saying? And because you had that experience. Absolutely. And a, another project I know you're working on, speaking of HBCU stories that needed to be done, you're working on a biopic of Doug Williams, correct? Yeah, yeah. It, I, mean, <laughs> yes. I, I just smile when I say it because, I mean, obviously that ties back to my, you know, my fandom for the Bucks and um, to the, my, my appreciation and love for HBCUs. And also just what I think um, is right about sports, because Doug, of course, first African-American quarterback to win a Super Bowl, 
won it in Washington. He was a backup. Nobody expected him to really play. He then took over as a guy named Jay Schrader in front of him. People don't even remember Jay. And then he beat, you know, a, a blonde head wonder kid named John Elway in the Super Bowl. And, you know, he had an amazing Super Bowl performance. So he I'm saying not only that was the best player on the field, you know, period. <laughs> period. Yeah. Four touchdowns in one quarter. Like he didn't just win. He won definitively. And he did it at a time when, you know, there weren't Russell Wilson's and Colin Kaepernick's and Kyler Murray's and Jameis Winston's and Cam Newton. They're like, no, there wasn't any of that. It was Doug. And he wasn't respected for what he did, but he still said, I'm going to go in and do the absolute best that I can do. And he galvanized people and brought people together. I just remember in my house, like, it was a good day. Even when Doug left the Bucs, he said the Bucs first, he, he ended up at the Redskins. Even when he wasn't playing for my team, when Doug was winning, like, I remember my dad was happy. My parents were happy. Like, it was a happy day to see a Black man performing at the highest level. He brought the community together. So we're working on that on that biopic right now for Doug. Can't wait to tell his story because um, he went through a lot of things and overcame a lot of adversity that people don't know. You know, Doug was was he took the Bucks to their first NFC championship. The first success we ever had wasn't under Tony Dungy. It was under Doug Williams. And he was 32 teams at the time, I guess 30 teams in the league. He was getting paid less than backups on other teams, right? So he wasn't like the lowest paid starting quarterback. No, 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 no. He was getting paid less than people who were backing up other people. They wouldn't pay him because they didn't respect him as a black quarterback. And um, around the time that he was having this contract dispute where he was just trying to get paid fairly, he lost his wife. His wife had a brain aneurysm. So you talk about low points and you talk about people using sport and competition to overcome personal adversity and bring communities together. To me, Doug is the embodiment of that. So I, I can't wait. I'm very honored to be a part of telling his story. Yeah, and it, it comes at such an appropriate time because you have Patrick Mahomes, who would be the first black quarterback in history to win back-to-back. -back. Unfortunately, it would come at your buck's expense, but nevertheless, yeah. um, you know, that's that just shows how far uh, that things have come, particularly at that position. I mean, look around the league. You got Deshaun Watson yes. and Russell Wilson. It's like black quarterbacks everywhere. <laughs> yeah, now we just need some black coaches everywhere, Jay. Now yeah, we... and some black, black coaches Black general managers, yeah. a black owner, that'd be great. <laughs> well, was he, and you know what? That's that's what happens, right? Because you you have largely white male billionaires who run the NFL, not all sports league, but especially in the NFL. And white male billionaires have not historically said, "What can we do for young qualified black people?" That's just not. That's not their thing. <laughs> that ain't their culture. That ain't what they talk about in the rooms that they're in. So you have to force that change, but. I love the fact that in the Super Bowl, you had, you know, two opposing coordinators on offense, which remember the knock before was, well, offense is so cerebral, right? So you don't have a lot of black offensive masterminds, you know? Now we have the two best teams, two black coordinators, not to mention Ty Bowles, of course, defensive coordinators, great coordinators on both sides, but you've got these qualified candidates and then not to slight anybody's teams, but we had, what, seven openings, eight openings, and the NFL hired a bunch of dudes. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was it was not people with like, oh, my gosh, they got him, amazing resume. You got somebody in Detroit that's eating kneecaps, somebody in Philly that's, that's you know, trying to master the English language, talking about systems. Like, 
it's, you know, again, I hope those people do well, not hating on them, but it is that old adage of if you're black in this country, you feel like I have to be three times as good as everybody else to get the same opportunity. We're seeing that play out, but I'm hopeful that it will change because so much is being talked about. And we're seeing these coaches that happen to be black succeed. And folks like Bruce Arians saying, I'm going to hire the best people. And I think it's good if they don't look like me or have my perspective. Considering I only have a few minutes left with you. I got to, you got like 90, you got like 50, 11 projects. I got to make sure that I get through. Let's get through a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, saw the pilot for bigger, which is really funny. Bigger, bigger, a, a series that you have um, on BT plus. Yeah. Um, very funny. Um, and uh, I, you have that. You also have, um, you know, a ton of other things. You have, a, uh, was it Fight Night, right? Yes. Fight Night, also something that you're working on, which is a podcast, correct? It's a podcast. It's playing on, on, on iHeart right now. It's crazy. It's the true story of the biggest heist in Georgia history, which actually happened after an Ali fight. This was when Ali couldn't get sanctioned. He had been banned by all the major boxing organizations. So he, he he went where everybody goes once you get banned, which is Atlanta, the ATL. He went down to Atlanta and fought a fight there unsanctioned. And you had all the biggest, you know, rich people. I don't care if they were drug dealers and dope boys or like, you know, financial people. It didn't matter. Everybody came down. Celebrities, entertainment, everybody came down. The biggest party after the fight was this casino night. And some dudes came in, stripped everybody butt naked and stole all their jewelry and furs and money after the fight. So it's still it is it is the actual true story that Uptown Saturday Night, if you know that. I know you know that movie, but some people may know that movie with um, Bill Cosby and Poitier. Was it Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier? Yeah. Yep. It is that actual true story that was based on. So we we did a podcast and it's airing now. It is an incredible story. It really, really is. Yeah, no, that sounds um, super incredible, especially the true crime genre. So big in podcasting. Uh, what's up on Girls Trip 2? Girls Trip 2, man. Listen, listen. Have you had any of the girls on here? Have you interviewed them? I have not. <laughs> we got to get them. We got to get them on here. We have, Here's the thing. Everybody is busy. Like, I want to do it and they want to do it. And we got to, first of all, we got to crack the story, right? So... Tracy Oliver, amazing sister who wrote the original along with Kenya Barris, like they're great working on some ideas. So I got to get the right idea. I got to get the right window to get the, the squad back together. Right. Because Tiffany, Latifah, Jada, Regina, nobody's sitting around. They all like, you know, they they, they booked and busy. All they the booked time. busy. <laughs> and right. the other thing, Jay, is that like, I don't want to do the sequel and everybody goes, why'd you mess it up? Right. So it's got to be right. Like, if I'm going to do Girl Strip 2, it really got to be right. But we are working on it behind the scenes. I will tell you that. Stuff is happening. It just hasn't happened yet. And I think it'll be right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mind that it's a little bit of time in between because I think it makes you miss those characters more. Yeah. Well, with Think Like a Man, you've obviously proven that you can, you know, pull off, right, a sequel. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there's no worry there. Now, this, despite, um, I mean, w with all your success, um. When you go in to try to pitch a movie, is it still an uphill battle for you? It's still a battle, but it's a different battle, right? So I am now, Hollywood is all about um, the money, the economics, the economic validation of creators like me. So I now have a track record that 
I don't have to walk into a room and say, why should you do a project with me? Or why should you give me a budget? That's I, I've moved past that point. It doesn't mean that I always get everything I ask for. I still have to go in and say, this is what I want to do. But I definitely am in a position where it is much more likely because I don't pitch things that I don't truly believe in and that I'm very passionate about. And so I don't pitch a lot, but I also don't get told no a lot. Now, I still have to execute on it, right? I still have to make sure that whatever budget I'm asking for makes sense based on the project. I still got to go to a particular actor or director and say, would you do it? Like, it's not like, oh, Will Packer's on it. Everybody just signs up. No, I still got to have a good project. Got to come in. I got to pitch it. But yeah, I get, you know, I get all my calls returned. You know what I mean? I get, I get serious consideration and, and probably, you know, people are more likely to green light my projects for sure. So I'm very blessed in that aspect. I've earned it, you know, worked from the ground up, knew nobody in Hollywood and have gotten to a point where I definitely consider myself a, a player in the industry. So I easy, I would never say easy, right? Because making any movie is hard, but I would definitely say I'm in a position now where a preponderance of projects that I'm bringing to the table are getting made. That's what I would say. Yeah, we have, uh, let's see, Ava DuVernay, Ryan Coogler, they both got three-digit budgets. And by three digits, I mean in the hundreds of millions. Yes. Um, you get an unlimited budget. What's the movie you're making? Oh, sci-fi. I'm going to do a cool, because I'm a sci-fi fan and I haven't had a chance to make it yet. Um, I'm going to do a sci-fi movie, you know, some dope black people in outer space. Not just black, right? You know what I'm saying? I got a hundred mil, so I got to put everybody in that one. But, you know, I would uh, I would do some cool sci-fi. I'm actually looking at some projects right now in that in that vein. I have a project that is called Warrior Queen, and it's a true story of Queen Amarinas, who actually ruled as a woman. Big deal back then. As a woman, she ruled the kingdom of Kush, what we think of as Egypt. She ruled that kingdom. And she had one eye. So she had this patch and her army rode elephants. Right. So they were bad. So imagine this bad sister with an eye patch on the back of an elephant. And this is when the Roman Empire was conquering everywhere, where there was one land that they could not conquer and they had to make peace with. And that was this kingdom. True story that Queen Amarinas uh, ruled. She ruled because her husband had been murdered and then she got put into uh, that that position they call her a, a Kandaki, K-A-N-D-A-K-E. I may not be pronounced that right, but um, she that's what they call those queens back in the day. And so she ruled it, and she her story is amazing. So I see that as an expensive movie. Um, it's set up at Universal. We're working on it now. Um, got somebody big that's gonna star in it. That I'll I'll come back here and tell you when. It's, All right, let me know. Yeah. I'm like, oh shit, we're about to make the black 300. <laughs> yeah. You got the right. There you go. See, it's like that. It's like that. Right. 300 gladiator. Like it's got that kind of energy, that kind of vibe. Troy, all right. I'm with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah, yeah. do it. All right, real quick, before I get you out of here, uh, Will, it's a game I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this. Or you I'm can giving get you two that. choices. You got to pick one. That's how it works. And any of the choices get me canceled immediately on Twitter. That's all I need to know. Can I? I mean, probably depending on. Well, you better you better act right look, there. You look, better, good. better choose right. I'm in. <laughs> good. I'm in. Good. No risk it, no biscuit. Let's go. That's 
there you go. That's the kind of attitude I like for this game. All right. What do you derive a greater satisfaction from? The Bucks beating the Saints or FAMU beating Bethune Cookman? Bucks being the Saints. <laughs> tell my FAMU people, I'm sorry, y'all. Because, because listen, whether FAMU beats Bethune or not, the band is going to win. You know what I'm saying? I, we going to win the party. They can't party like us. You know what I mean? On the field, it matters more with my Bucks. Everywhere else, it matters with FAMU. As long as the 100 does what they need to do, I'm good. All right. Uh, salt or sugar on grits? Listen, let me tell all y'all country people something that's putting sugar on your grits, Okay. Listen, put some salt, you put some butter on there. Stop putting sugar on your grits, all right? Thank you, Will. Okay. School these heathens. School these heathens. I'm just telling you, these are country heathens, and y'all need to do better. You need need to pray about that. Stop putting sugar on your grits. That ain't where it goes. That's not where it goes. It's it's the only acceptable answers are salt, pepper, and cheese. That's literally it. Cheese. Come on with it. Yes. (laughs) That's, That's it. I like a good grit back. That's right. Uh, Warren Sapp or Derrick Brooks? Derrick Brooks. But now, let me say, Derrick Brooks. <laughs> Derrick okay, Derrick Brooks. All right. But, but, all respect to Sapp, like, without Sapp, because you need nice and nasty. You know what I mean? And and Brooks was the consummate professional. You know, he was somebody that did everything right. And, you know, highest uh, uh, moral standards, everything. And I like that. I, I, I'd like to pattern myself after that. Sap was a dog. Sap was like, whatever. He was going to say whatever and do whatever. But he was a bad man on that field. But I got to go with, with 55. Brooks. All right. Uh, girls trip or think like a man? Oh, Jay, you're going to get what you doing. <laughs> what are you doing? Why don't you ask me which of my kids are, are, are smarter or, or look better? Like, what are you doing? That's what you get for making great movies. <laughs> you gave me a lot of material. I'm going to go. <laughs> See, you don't even feel right answering. I don't. I love I it. Because I'm imagining people from the other movie calling me going, really? You're like, wait a minute. I, listen, I love my girls trip team. I love them. And, and that movie was absolutely very special. But it's Think Like a Man. Because it happened earlier in my career. And it was at a time when all, like, like there's a story for all the actors that were in there. None of them are as big as they are now. Like Kevin Hart, people, Kevin Hart. I remember pitching Kevin Hart and studio execs saying, we know Kevin Hart, like soul plane didn't work. You know what I mean? His pilot got canceled. Like he's always a sidekick. He's not a star. He's not like, don't center the movie around that care. They were telling me this. He's not a leading man. We know Kevin Hart. He's a known commodity and we're not impressed. And that was the breakout, really, for him. Um, Terrence J got the role at the table read. You know what I mean? He wasn't even a part of the cast, but he came in and he was completely off book at the table read, meaning he had memorized all his lines. And he was so good and so funny that we was like, we got to pick him, you know? Um, And the way it came together with Gavin, Taraji and Regina, Jerry Farrar, like Gary Owen, I mean, Megan Good. That's just, to this day, we still all are in the same group chat. They are still a hot, <laughs> ignorant mess. Every last one of them, tell them I said it. But I love them. I love those guys. It's because it happened earlier in my career. And so it, means, it means something to me. I hear you. Um, and finally, and this is going to be the toughest one, Will. Thelma or Alona? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you love good times. Oh. Well, Alona was fine. I mean... <laughs> 
mean, a lot of brothers said that about Thelma too, right? Thelma was fine too. Thelma was. But Walona, <laughs> Walona just did something for you, <laughs> Jenna Dubois. Walona <laughs> did something. Thelma was Thelma was. I don't know. Thelma was more like I could see as the homegirl sister. Like I'm not saying she was fine, but she. I mean, I had a different connection to her that I had to Walona. I think. I don't know if that's the right answer. That might be. <laughs> what is everybody? What's the popular choice there, Thelma? I don't know. You, you're the first person I asked this. It, usually, hey, don't I be ask trying out new stuff with me, Jay. Can no, me? but I, I do this or that with everybody. No, but the this I or that is questions is, that are tried and true where there is a safe. No, answer. because they're based off your career, your life, your taste. I my, look, my researchers and producers, they dig deep. To find this information. So once they came across the fact that Good Times is your favorite show, of course I was going to ask you this. That's fair. I like it. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay. I'm going to stick with Walona for that answer. That's good. That's a good All right. One. That, by the way, your, this, that lineup was dope. So props to you and your team. Thank you. That was very, like, catered to me. Like, that was awesome. That was dope. Very much so. Yeah. Um, I, though I still wonder, before she got Penny, how was Walona single working at the boutique but living in the projects? I was just like, I would think that you might be able to, like, come up out your circumstance a little faster, Walona. Listen, I give all props <laughs> to Norman Lear. That brother is a legend and, and put us on screen uh, before other people were. But you are absolutely right. Like, explain that. You know what I'm saying? Right. She had a good job. She was making checks. Had a good Right. Like, you know. <laughs> She was in a cash business. You know what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? <laughs> she wasn't like James working at that damn car wash <laughs> with the same pair of corduroys, his what? entire <laughs> torn pocket. Like, come on, dog. They, what they didn't spend on was James' fashion budget. James' costume budget was nothing. He was no oh, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, Good Times is such a great rewatch, and it's funny because you know Norman Lear, the television that he was doing during that time. I mean. A lot of that would not get made today, no. which is really which really says something about just how revolutionary that it was. Um, you yourself, very revolutionary for this uh, profession. Well, I would wish wish you more success, but I don't even think that's possible. But <laughs> but nevertheless, I will wish you a lot more. More importantly, I hope when this airs, you are able to crow about how the Bucks have won a Super Bowl title. I got to wave my flag. Wave that flag. Thank that's you. right. Go ahead and do it. You got to plant that outside your house. Yeah. Yo, you know what? I got to tell you, my wife, my amazing wife, Heather. So the Super Bowl, her birthday, it's always around the same time. Her birthday is Saturday at the Super Bowl. So I knew if the Bucks won, like I was going to go to Tampa. Like she knew. She knows who she married. So she know I would I, I would walk to Florida if I have to. She knew I was going to be there. Right. And so we didn't know what we we're going to do for her birthday. You know, it's COVID. So everything is inside. But we didn't know until the fourth quarter of the Bucks Packers game what was going to happen for her birthday. I love my wife. She's amazing. She is letting me uh, celebrate her birthday as well as a little football game that's going to happen. A little football game so, on the side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. look at but that. <laughs> I, so I say that to say she actually got me. I'll send you a picture, a sign that says "Go Bucks" and put it outside the house. Oh, cool. fellas, get you a wife that is a sports fan and respects your sports fandom and does stuff like that. So once the Bucks won, she got me a sign. It's outside. Like, I'm the corny dude in the neighborhood. Like, who has 
a sign for their team. It's not like you're supposed to have signs that say, oh, my, my child just graduated from high school. You know what I mean? My child is an honor student. <laughs> right. Like, oh, we just had a baby. My sign says go Bucks with some footballs outside my house. What can I say? That's amazing. And that's amazing that she got that for you. My wife is amazing. She is. She deserves all the credit. I appreciate you. Well, thank you again, Will, for joining me on this podcast. Um, Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. At the top of the show, I talked at length about one racist asshole, and now I'm going to talk about another. And unfortunately, this person's racism resulted in eight people being killed. First, let me say what a lot of folks in the media apparently were having a hard time saying when this happened. A 21-year-old grown-ass man murdered eight people, six of whom were Asian women, in what was clearly a hate crime. The murderer targeted three Asian spies because according to police and trust me, I got some smoke for them in a minute. He is a sex addict and he blamed these spies for tempting him because reportedly he's a devout Christian. Now let's get to why I'm fucking bothered. Let me start with the police, specifically Captain Jay Baker of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office. During a news conference, Baker was asked about a possible motive for the crime, including if race was a factor. And Baker responded to the question by pointing out that the murderer, whose name is Robert Long, told them his crimes weren't racially motivated. Question for the room. How often does even the most obvious racist admit that they are racist or I'm sorry, racially motivated? Let me enter into evidence a story done a few years ago by CBS News about the modern day Ku Klux Klan and their affinity for Donald Trump. One Klan member was asked if the Klan are white supremacists. And here's what he said. Direct quote. We're not white supremacists. We believe in our race. The KKK, whose entire brand is racial terror, neo-Nazism and hating anything that isn't the color of snow, would not admit that they were white supremacists. So why then would a police official, a captain, an experienced police authority dismiss the obvious racism of this Atlanta killer simply because the guy who murdered multiple Asian women said, I'm not a racist? You know how many times in a week a self-proclaimed non-racist calls me a nigger? Shit happens like 10 times a week. People in this country are more paranoid and offended by the word racist than actual racism. We just saw Karen Osborne, oops, I mean, sorry, Sharon Osborne, have a DEFCON 5 meltdown on national television because she was more upset about being perceived as a racist than the fact that she publicly defended racist-ass Piers Morgan. The next level of fuckery from this police captain is that he told reporters that Robert Long also committed these heinous crimes because he, quote, was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. And that Tuesday was a really bad day for him. And this is what he did. A really bad day. You know who had a bad day? The eight people who got murdered. That's who had a bad fucking day. You know what most of us do when we have a bad day? Binge watch Netflix, drink some tequila and eat a pint of ice cream. Just like low sugar doesn't make you call people racist slurs, bad days don't make you kill innocent people. It's frustrating and angering the ways in which white supremacy always manages to get a soft landing. If it's true that this man had a sex addiction and that he was targeting these spies and these women to, as authorities put it, quote, eliminate locations he saw as temptations, then that means their gender, profession and their race made them a target. I don't know if you know this, but there are 7 billion strip clubs in Atlanta and they all hold lots of temptation. 
but he wasn't looking for them because that wouldn't pacify his vengeance. And when you think about how Asian women are fetishized, how vulnerable some of these women are working in these massage parlors, this characterization of the murderer as just some twisted sex addict is just insulting. In the past year, there have been 3,800 hate incidents reported against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders nationwide. And again, these are just the reported numbers. But in this country, no racism is ever new. It's just all reinvented. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have faced this hatred for years. I suggest you read up on the Chinese Exclusion Act and also remember that Japanese Americans were put in internment camps in this country during World War II. Meanwhile, Americans of German descent could come and go as they please. Gee, I wonder why. From the moment that former President Donald Trump called the coronavirus the China virus and Kung flu, he was normalizing and encouraging hatred of Asians. By the way, that police captain I just excoriated last March on his Facebook page, he posted a picture of an anti-Asian T-shirt that read COVID-19 imported virus from China. But I'm sure he doesn't consider that racist either. We've had too many dark days in our country, especially in the past year. And this was just another one. As black people, we unfortunately can relate all too well to what our Asian brothers and sisters are going through right now. It's important that we stand in solidarity with each other as targets of white supremacy. Remember that the goal of white supremacy is to divide marginalized groups for its own gain, which is why the myth that Asians are the model minority is so often perpetuated because it gives them justification for denying us equality and for treating us inhumanely. Let us not fall for that. Let's stand together and stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, Rich Burner is our technical director, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador, and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. <laughs>